Drumming. This is the Working Drummer Podcast, featuring conversations with ground-level pros from all styles and regions. Real drummers with real stories about making a living in music. Hey everyone, this is Matthew Krause, and you are listening to the podcast Working Drummer. Today my guest is drummer Adam Box. Adam is the touring and recording drummer with the country duo Brothers Osborne. Adam grew up in Mississippi, where, with the support of family, friends, and his church community, helped to develop the skills he needed to be a world-class musician and drummer. This community and environment led to Adam meeting legendary bass player Chris Etheridge, member of the Flying Burrito Brothers. Chris became a mentor to Adam and was an important figure in the early days of Adam's career. Shortly after Adam moved to Nashville, his talents were quickly realized and led to his gig with the group Brothers Osborne. He's also played on recordings by Chase Bryant, Lucy Silvis, Jeremy Leslie, Christy Lee Cook, and many others. Adam also produces and records out of his home studio, Gilded Palace. If you're interested in supporting what Zach and I do here at the podcast, you can become a Patreon member. Find us at patreon.com slash working drummer. Any donation in any amount gets you access to exclusive content that's provided by our former guests. This content covers a variety of topics, but it's all educational and applicable to the working professional. If Patreon isn't your thing, you can make a one-time donation through PayPal, and you can find links to both of these things on our homepage at workingdrummer.net. And while you're there, you can find out more about this episode and the over 300 episodes that we've done over the years. And no matter what your platform of choice is for listening to podcasts, giving us a like, a rating, and review always helps us grow. So I've been a fan of Adams for quite some time. I remember hearing uh, Brothers Osborne early on and being excited about this music that was being produced in Nashville that uh, really resonated with me, I really liked. And then come to find out that it's the band on the recordings that you see live and just really digging the drum parts. Um, at times unassuming, but always powerful, always thoughtful. If you're not familiar with Brothers Osborne, I encourage you to, to check it out. It, it definitely transcends genres and crosses over and scratches a lot of itches for for whatever you're into musically. Um, it's just it's just great playing, and um, it was an honor to have a chance to speak with Adam. And uh, hope you enjoy this conversation with Adam Box. valuable takeaway after being here in the studio after it was been completed and everything and recording tracks in the larger live room and then experimenting and, and setting up a smaller kit and what is actually a vocal booth but ended up making it big enough to get a smaller kit in there but um you know realizing that 
I didn't want it to sound like Blackbird. You know, it's like if I want Blackbird drums, you'd go to Blackbird. You know, <laughs> yeah. I wanted it to sound l- at least like something that you couldn't get anywhere else but here. And I think that, um, you know, when people are limited in where they can record, it's like, no, this is it's not a limitation. It is a a unique uh, it's a unique space that you can it may take a little more work, but you can get something out of it that when I always really appreciated putting on headphones and feeling like I was in the room where if I was listening to something that was heavily treated and some artificial reverb and stuff, you kind of get a little more disconnected from that feeling of standing in front of the drums while the drummer's kind of playing, or even I mix drummer's perspective. I so, do too, yeah. Uh, even sitting at the drums, but um, it's allowed me to really experiment with what I want as far as taste goes mm. because. Um, you know throughout the times you know snare vibes snare sounds change you know it's like what was popular in the 90s oh my gosh you know uh you got like what spin doctors and those kind of (laughs) bringing out those sort of piccolo almost sounding snares and of course uh as soon as some of those songs hit people are kind of following suit and doing that but uh the live room sometimes would just give me, I was like, this is too rocking, you know? So I'm going to end up in the dry room. Sometimes the dry room's too dry. Sometimes I'm like, you know what? I'm going to play two drum tracks, one in the live room with just the overhead, but play the main meat, what's actually thumping the speakers in the dry room. So instead of getting a microphone and getting a actual representation of the room, uh, um, coming like I can crack open the smaller room instead of getting a representation of that with the microphone outside of that room it was like I'll, I'll play the drums again oh wow and I won't hit this maybe I won't hit the cymbals I'll just hit the kick and snare so I can get the room sound of the kick and snare that's a separate track to I mean a separate take um, <laughs> and uh, the the phase and stuff that's happening really cuts through at that point um, so yeah, it's allowed me just to experiment, uh, and, and, you know, having the opportunity to be able to do that, uh, is, you know, we're looking for something and we don't never know. We rarely know what it is until we hear it. And I would say a couple times I found that here, you know? Yeah. Well, and I, I think that another important point that you made is the, this is the sound that my studio provides mm-hmm. much in the, in the same way that your thumbprint is your style of playing, uh, your approach to the drums, and the sound that you're getting on the kit. So room is part of the equation. Mm-hmm. And when someone hires you, they're hiring not only your ability to interpret the music, but also your thumbprint on how you're hitting the snare drum, mm-hmm. how you're tuning the drum. So, but that's amazing, man, that, that of playing two different drum tracks in two different rooms that's mm-hmm. that's i've never heard that before except for like maybe in the 80s when they were recording drums separately from cymbals mm, yeah you know. yeah and I've, I've definitely found that um if there's tracks where i'm not hitting the cymbals i can get the drum sound i want it's a lot of times because i'm i'm getting the drum sound actually from the overheads um where once it gets there if i was to even look at the cymbal it would be so uh, just abrasive in your, you know, just, just kill your ears. Uh, so yeah, I, I like, um, being able to get the meat in the, and then going in there and then just doubling the, the, the meat 
uh, and you know, rolling off all the low end, even just letting the decay of the snare just blend in with my dry snare. I think it really creates, um, and a lot of times it's not the same snare, or a lot of times it is, but um, it's the same same concept as if you um, have a vocal track, and if you just copy and paste the vocal track, all you get is a louder vocal track. You don't get any kind of effect from doing that. So people will copy and paste a vocal and it's like, this is useless, just, this is useless to me. But if you re-record the vocal track and yes. double it, yes. all of a sudden you got something that's happening in, in, with the air and the phase and stuff that creates something very cool. And so I just try to do the same thing with drums. I know? love that. That's that's really and and I think a lot of us are familiar with that doubling of vocals mm-hmm. and why not on drums? Mm-hmm. Yeah, is there anything in the construction of the studio that is like I'm glad I did this. This was a game changer. This is an important aspect of the studio space. Um, well, I was. You have angles. You have diffusing with the with the stone quarry you know rock you have uh, some dampening and some other things like that but you know this is a uh, kind of superficial but it's um honestly the aesthetic is big because not just for me here personally i needed to create a space that i wanted to be in i, yep. I, I know how i can get how i've gotten in the past even with I've, I've always been building studios you know everywhere i ended up renting places i was going first thing i did was build some sort of studio but also know how uh it becomes a place of work and you have to really make yourself go there and sometimes it's the last place you want to go even though it's your passion what you're doing so i just said i wanted to create a place that even if i didn't feel like working i still wanted to be in yes and when people came uh, here they realize that you know this is not this is a step forward this is not I'm not recording in somebody's bedroom I am recording somebody's basement I am but I'm in a studio you are in a studio there just yeah. happens to be a house above it yeah exactly Don Perry the drummer that played with Jethro Tall for 18 years or so mm-hmm. he said the same thing to me he said the studio space where I write and record and compose needs to be a space that I want to hang out in mm-hmm. and just create that environment. And, and and I believe that, man, very much, very much so. Because again, like you say, this is your passion and we have access to all this technology that allows us to do it at home now. But sometimes you're like, okay, this was, this has been my dream. Why don't I want to go down in the studio right now? Mm-hmm. It is work, yeah. You know, so you need to create that environment. It's so fascinating that you say that. Yeah, the name of the studio and and why you called it that. Yeah, it's uh, the Gilded Palace. Um, uh, you know, spent a lot of time with um, a bassist named Chris Etheridge in Meridian, Mississippi, where I grew up, and um, you know, come to find out that we had a a, a living legend. Uh, living in our town Mm -hmm. that you know he'd just be at the um, little gambling machine at the echo lounge two people in there you know um, and you would just never know this guy's played on some of the most legendary recordings for for willie nelson a stardust record all the hits redheaded stranger on the road again whiskey river 
you know, and this guy is, he's, um, you know, he's in his sixties and he's in Meridian and uh, taking care of his mom. And he's been there since, you know, the late nineties or, um, we, I definitely gravitated towards that because I'm a drummer and he was a bass player, but he, uh, he really took me under his wing. And ever since, uh, the first time we met, uh, he just, he started really putting in my head that I could do this, you know, maybe slowly, but surely, but, um, it, the, How did he know that? How did he know he could play? He, you know, he, I, I, I you know, I, I feel like I don't deserve the things he was saying, but, you know, he was buddies, you know, with um, like Mitch Mitchell was his best friend, you know, and he played with Jim Keltner on all these records. He would call Jim and him would talk on the phone while I'm sitting there like looking, you know, and uh, Chris would tell these people, man, Adam is one of the great, he's like you, he's one of the greatest drummers in the world, you know, and I was just like, yeah, okay, but I appreciate <laughs> it. But he uh, he said it enough and introduced me to enough people, these people would sneak into town, like Spooner Oldham and um, Norbert Putnam, these people would come to town and just hang out with Chris and we'd just stay up all night in this house that was abandoned, that was an old house downtown that had a couch and some, you know, yeah. we were just sitting there all night and, but he, he made me believe it. He, he's, he said, I reminded him of his friends, you know, from the back of the day. And, uh, I had to take his word for it, I guess. And, uh, so I moved, moved to Nashville and tried and, mm -hmm. um, I don't know if he was right in the sense of exactly what he was saying, but he was right that I could make a career out of it. Yeah, yeah, know? for sure. And I want to get to that, but I, I'm also curious to know, I know that your parents were uh, an inspiration mm. for you. Big time. But uh, would love to know kind of what was the seed that was planted to get you to uh, to where you were that people were recognizing your talents it's uh well my parents my dad had me a, gave me a drum set when i was you know probably three years old and i could play them you know i could just kick snare kick snare and sing you know on the getting ready for preschool you know yeah. so there was rhythm there and they knew it but it was such a ingrained part of my identity um that it was ever they were used to the child prodigy kind of thing you know what that was i was not that i'm i do not claim that but at least when you're that young it can start to look like something like that but it was so such a normal part of my identity my sister playing bass my dad's guitarist we grew up playing at church you know and them getting me up there i'm sure there was a lot of pride in my parents but um you know i def when once i started thinking that maybe i wanted to make a career out of this there wasn't friction by no means but they definitely they loved you know the fact that uh this was the thing that gave me a lot of praise from people and stuff mm -hmm. but essentially going out and making a career out of this looked as impossible as it did to me for sure you know yeah. so i can't say that they were 100% thrilled that i was going to go pursue it but they uh, my mother is very wise and she understands that you have to let danger um, become a part of your children's life so they can. Um, Amen. You know, it, it, the the coddling, the protecting is, is actually harmful. Yeah. So they let me go out and uh, I, that also I needed to prove 
to myself, to my family, and to all the also all the people that maybe wasn't rooting for me, that I could do this. And but more so for the people that were rooting for me. And I had a huge family in the church growing up and the local community that were, you know, kind of behind me. So. And that's, is that where you were mostly playing was in church or were you playing in bands? Church throughout my childhood uh, up into my late teens. And then I had joined a rock band in Jackson, Mississippi, which was the first time I started playing like with national acts opening for like Seether and anybody that would come to uh-huh. um, Jackson, those active rock um, bands would be the opening. So it was my first time to really be playing kind of in bars um and being in the scene kind of deal um and then coming back to meridian i was playing more with with chris etheridge in the what would be look like a the juke joint you know kind of deal but try but also showing up to church uh to play and you know like being late for practice you know (laughs) learning uh, those things yeah those things because i was a knucklehead but also my priorities were you know uh, maybe not a line where they sh- should be at the time, but um, but it allowed you to be more sympathetic to like podcasters that want to show up forty five minutes later oh, yeah. than they have originally planned. <laughs> yeah, so uh, no that 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 is a skill that uh, has comes in handy. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, it's just <laughs> I just want to live by the motto that it's uh, everything's. I mean, everything's going to be okay. Even if we started three hours late, so it's it's okay. It's okay. <laughs> I know the story of moving to Nashville and um, connecting with a young songwriter from Texas through a Craigslist ad that you posted from Nashville. Like, Mm -hmm. I'm new to Nashville. I'm just going to post this random Craigslist ad. Mm -hmm. And it was picked up by a teenager Mm -hmm. in Texas. And through phone conversations, you're like, I think this guy's got something. Mm-hmm. And end up moving to Texas. Yeah. Well, he actually, he didn't send me any music for a whole year. He just called me every month. Yeah, yeah. But uh, eventually, he, he he wanted me to swing. My release was up. I didn't know what I was going to do. I've been in Nashville a year. Didn't really know anybody. I didn't make any real contacts. And um, well, let me ask you. I'm sorry to interrupt, but what, what were you doing? Do what were you doing during that year? I just googled every day. Like I just googled Nashville drummers or drums. Nash, you know, anything that would give me some sort of. Uh, anything, anything pertaining to drummers at all. Um, were you working? Were you going out? Were you? Uh, well, I had a buddy that. Uh, ended up moving up here so we just split this one room of it was you know three bedroom house there's people in other rooms but I had this one room because I had no income like let's just split this room we're literally like sleeping in the same bed and everything and um, but we ended up uh, we (laughs) we found an ad that was looking for two people to work for Zanies outside sales we didn't even know what that was outside sales (laughs) And uh, we showed up. It was just like Step Brothers, the scene where they both show up in the suits, you know. <laughs> so we just do the interview together because he didn't have a vehicle, and I, you know, I had the vehicle, whatever. And we show up, and um, and they gave us the job. So we started going out and selling tickets for Zanies. Yeah. And, it's a comedy club here in Nashville. Yeah, but it was ruthless, man. I, I didn't, you know, I was a solicitor now, and 
these businesses would just be irate that we were coming in there doing that. So we just would be out in the heat. We'd go to somewhere like Murfreesboro Park and just anywhere that looked like it was dense with businesses and walk in. And uh, eventually we we're just beat up, splitting up, going. And we got back together. I was like, listen, we're going to this next place and you just follow my lead. And I said, I just walked in and I said, hey, um, we're looking for Teresa. And the reason I said Teresa is because she had a name tag on that said Teresa or whatever the name was. <laughs> and she goes, well, I'm Teresa. And I was like, hey, we have a singing telegram for you. And she's like, what? <laughs> and they shut down the whole business when we'd go in and do this because everybody had to come. Like yeah. it, we got we went from getting kicked out immediately to just saying they had a singing telegram. A doctor could be in the middle of surgery. He was stopping to come out and watch this. <laughs> So we just, and this just evolved more and more. And we yeah. just started, we sang um, eight days a week by the Beatles. Ooh, I need your love, babe. We'd worked it out with harmonies and dance moves and everything. Good Lord. And at the end of it, it would be like, uh, so uh, Teresa, uh, we, the person that sent you this, um, she's real tall, has a spider tattoo on the side of her neck. She's like, she? <laughs> like, yeah. You remember you bumped into her at at, uh, at Walmart while you were shopping? And she's like, just confused that yeah, some yeah. woman, you know, it's with a spider tattoo on her neck, whatever. And, um, and I said, anyways, it doesn't matter. She's right outside the door. She's been cooking all day and she's going to invite you over. And they're like, no, 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 no. While we're walking to the door. And we turn back around and say, it was from Zanies. And they would just be so relieved that this yeah. person that's been cooking for them or whatever. And then the, the whether it's the boss or the doctor, whatever office we're in, just buy tickets for everybody because they of the whole thing. And, that um, is crazy. So they started calling us the singing solicitors. They started calling Zanies. We ended up on the radio doing this. And the Zanies got furious because, you know, it wasn't one of their partners. <laughs> and uh, yeah. anyway, so we reinvented the the sing, the soliciting game, you know, turned yeah. it back on them. And um, well, that's how we got by because it wasn't a lot of money. But we started selling tic- Zanies tickets. That's amazing, man. This was got wild. It was. I've been in every business in, in Nashville, every business in every town around and doing singing yeah. telegrams. <laughs> My uh, gosh. Uh, so just, but you're like always eye on the prize. Like, what is it that I want to do? How is this going to lead to? Yeah, <laughs> I, get, I get nervous thinking about it because I had no no anxiety about it i just knew it was going to happen somehow but there's no sense in getting in a hurry or wondering about it i still felt you know the same feelings you feel you know i'm like 25 26 at this point but i still feel those care carefree like oh, i gotta graduate high school next year what's after that i don't know I'll go to college you know <laughs> you know it's like yeah you don't know you just but you, you trust that it's going to be all right you know right 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 man mm-hmm. So you moved to to Texas for a brief time. Oh, so yeah. yeah. So I, uh, he wanted me to swing through Texas, pick him up, and head on to California to record a demo. And I'm like, this kid, you know, he's got kids young, you know. And I'm, yeah. I'm like, I don't even know if you're any good, man. Yeah. You know, you just it's good conversation. So he sends me some music, like just him playing. He never really played with other musicians or nothing, but I heard it and I was like, oh, this kid is good. Yeah, really good. And I moved down there and we just jammed in this trailer in the pasture. His parents had set up with some friends and 
I took my buddy that was living down there. He played guitar, and we just jammed every day. And we came back to Nashville, and uh, the pieces started coming together, putting together a band, and uh, we just showcased, showcased, showcased until he did get his record deal, uh, a pretty legit one. And immediately, his first single was a number one hit. Wow! But you know, I did the day we landed that record deal. It, it took a few years. You know, uh, that day I got let go. Right. And um, I couldn't believe it because I've been hearing over and over, hey, you need to watch out. I know those stories where people make it and you get, you know, I'm yeah, like, no, now, this is this yeah. is right here. It's yeah. impossible. Right, right. Like my roots are so dug into this. Like I believed it from the yeah. get go. There's no way that could happen. But sure enough, other people coming in, you don't realize that they have ways of manipulating kind of at least the dynamic and, um, and it was sort of something like that. I was a little too close, you know, it was mm. like he, he was the star and mm-hmm. I, I refused to say I tiptoe around the star because this was more like my little brother kind mm-hmm. of deal. Yeah. And, um, I, under, I get the dynamic, the star dynamic, I get it, but it was just too close. It would be like a, your older brother in real life, like, uh, like you, be, you know, becoming the king and you have to you know, you're this, you have to bow down when you see him. It's like, this is my brother. It's not, you know, I'm not doing that. Yeah. Um, so losing that was the worst at the time, just the worst thing I thought had ever happened to me. I was going to go back to Mississippi. I didn't want to start over, but I did get, um, the, the guy that's playing bass for, and has been playing the whole time. Pete Sternberg came by the house and asked me how the gig was going. I was like, man, you can play this. You got a record deal and fired me. Not even it didn't even fire you in person. Yeah, his his yeah managers came to the house to fire me, <laughs> and um, so he was like, "Just hold up, man. I I, th- I think I got something. It's it's good. Just just hang tight." And I guess a, a few days later, John Osborne called me. They just got a record deal, you know. So I didn't think much about. it. I was like, "Well, this is just yeah. I've been here. Yeah, yeah whatever." And um, you know, I show up and to bus call which they uh, call everything bus call it's a 12 passenger van bus calls at blah blah yeah, right. we get there and there's a bus i'm like oh snap okay like i'm gonna sleep in a bunk you know this yeah. is i've never done this yeah. and just kind of kept showing up <laughs> you know never i never i didn't think i ever committed to the gig i just kept showing up when they said another gig was coming and yeah. I, was like, I guess i'm the drummer even and, to this day you know i never really signed on i know i've done three records yeah with you guys. i'm really considering after you know a decade now joining this band <laughs> <laughs> i want to i want to talk about tones because you mentioned before there's that sound that snare sound if we could just like hang on snare sounds for a bit mm-hmm. from the 90s we heard spin doctors and mm-hmm. like oh that's the sound we're, we're going for and then things changed and then depending on the genre or the scene that you're in that that could dictate the type of sounds that you're going for but there is a an, an organic and 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 yet vintage and throwback sound to what we're hearing in a lot of modern music and if we're talking about modern country right now and even to a, a an extent uh, crossover americana we're talking about a retro sound, mm-hmm. a dry, mm-hmm. something that has inspired companies like Big Fat Snare Drum mm-hmm. and, and other people like approaching this 
sound and wanting to achieve this sound. So could you talk a little bit about that? Has that always been a part of your sound or what has brought you to this place that in my mind is somewhat signature to what I hear when I hear your recording? I really think it's the acrylite snare drum. Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Because uh, I can honestly say on a majority of the brothers' recordings has been an acrylite. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, I play Craviato's Diamond Series drums, so I don't know if this is, but I do play my Ludwig snares. However, a a side snare I play... um, here in the studio is the di- the Craviato Diamond too, which I can get a nice low kind of sound. But the the Acrylite for me has always been it, it was the Superphonic for a long time, just a regular old yeah. alloy Superphonic. But um, here in the studio, where I'm not bashing necessarily, I realize I can get so I can get that low, super low tone and mess with the snare wires. And get so I can get something super dry, and it has the you know it's a seventy, so it has the um, internal little, muffler, the muffler and yeah. stuff. And I can get that super like throwback, um, Russ Kunkel vibe, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Um, so I, yeah, everybody's always surprised. I, I even posted a picture the other day of uh, Chad. Cromwell sent me his drums to use on this promo video or whatever, but I took a, I had my Acrylite, you know, on the picture. So everybody's like, "Is that an Acrylite on a ten thousand dollars?" I'm like, "Hey, <laughs> can't buy me love, man." You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so five and a half is the uh, yeah the five the small yeah the five, five and a half yeah. And um, I've always loved Acrylite. I wish I could play it live. It just can't hang. You know, but I would say uh, as far as influence on where where my ears are, you know, what what really turns me on, you know, for a long time, uh, the first time I heard Sad But True by Metallica (laughs) and you heard that snare sound, I remember just trying to communicate, being like 17, trying to communicate to an engineer, (laughs) how I want this sound. They're like, uh you know, it's going to be a lot. lot it's going to be a lot to do with your snare. You know, yeah. And uh, I didn't. I wasn't. I was still cranking my snare up as tight as I could back yeah. then. You know. Um. But I, you know, a, a big influence even before country and even before some of the pop, the Christian contemporary scene was using these deep tone snares. And then bands that had crossed over, like um, what is that band? Uh, Mute Math. Yeah. And some bands like that that yeah. were actually, you know, kind of floating around the Christian scene and then merging over. Were you already using these super deep snare sounds? I feel like I was hearing it there first. Okay. But as far as, but it was still wet. And then you started hearing uh, that same uh, tone of snare drum dried up a whole lot, you know. Um, so it's got a low tone, it's, it's detuned. And I'll do that on my side snare. I'll tune it up pretty you know like you would tune a tight snare but then i'll detune two of the lugs all the way down okay right completely so where on the the spectrum where the would be the two lugs would they be it right would, next to well each other i won't what it, whichever since it's usually my side snare i definitely detune the one that's right under where the stick's hitting because it's going to come loose anyways if uh-huh. i don't then i skip one and then I detune the next one. Okay. And that usually gets it a, no matter how tight the snare is, it'll have that super dead, 
deep sound. Now you the one that's in between, yeah, that you skipped. That one can come down a little bit too, but it'll end up getting that. Per- it's exactly what I did on "Ain't My Fault" snare. That yeah, that splat yeah. is that you know. Yeah, that's another song that I had to learn for mm-hmm. uh, for a, a gig, and and uh, ooh man, that left hand. Yeah, consistently it's, it's a workout because because that for people that don't know that song, that's cut 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 cut, and that's just that is a skill in the studio that people forget is hitting that snare drum with consistency. And you, when you have to play that much, you know, that pop, 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 that's mm-hmm. gotta, you know, I turn the kick, the kick and snare kind of on autopilot. I'm speaking more with my hi hat on that. Mm-hmm. Maybe not mm-hmm. so much in the recording as I do live, but the live is where I'm keeping the velocities pretty much the same on the kick and snare, but my hi hats where I'm letting that, uh, express the um, dynamic more like it's it's tight while he's singing the verse, but as it's getting closer to the. Yep. But it ain't my fault. I'm slowly opening and opening it. So that jam ain't my fault. I, now I got it a little more open. Got to close. Have a little fun. You know, back down. Yes. Run, but yes. it ain't my open. You know. So I'm trying to speak more with that hand. Yes, for sure. That mm-hmm. that that. that um old Miranda Lambert song, Kerosene. I say old. It's not that old, but really, for anybody that knows that song, Kerosene is, is that same kind of thing where there's ways to express the dynamics of the song through the hi-hat, mm-hmm. you know, with that, especially because that's kind of a similar, somewhat similar thing, especially more related to Pretty Woman or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, that's 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 really interesting. And then are are you using other things and speaking of just studio only, what are you using besides the tuning? Are you using other implements? I use a whole, I mean I I pretty much leave them all the time. There's the EQ roots on my toms. Mm. Uh, which are like the bandana things you see. Yeah, I, I love that sound. I use it on the snare uh, not so much on the snare as I use a uh, drum taco. Mm-hmm. Uh lay on there. That's perfect. But, um, yeah, it's just crazy how I've always wanted that need live. I need the snare to ring out. I need some like time, like almost like a natural gated sound. You know, I need some time. Like I'll tell the monitor engineer to leave the release slow. So my snare won't be cut off too quick. Yeah. But in the studio, um, uh, I definitely it's drier because in, in the recording it just is coming out wet even though I haven't added anything to it because of the room mics yeah you know, stuff um, but yeah and are you conscious of rim shots or no rim shots in the studio if I want it to have that deep it's all about the tone if it's um you can get that perfectly deep and consistent sound by turning the butt of the stick around and hitting directly in the center of the snare yeah you know um, but a lot of times, uh, definitely I'm pl- trying to play a consistent rim shot sort of hit, uh, depending on the, the style. But yeah. Uh, yeah, that's that's a. D- I love the way it's so much easier to mix when you just hit the center of the snare. You know, oh, okay. I used to think like if I saw somebody playing like that growing up, I'd be like, this newbie doesn't you know know how to hit the snare, you know. Yeah. But I, I didn't realize that there's so uh, the the wave is per is it's the, the the wavelength is nearly perfect when you 
hit the center of the snare if you just zoom in and look at it it's almost like the even the phase and the shape of it doesn't have a spike and a small tail the center of this will have a big full bubble you know oh wow i love that Mm -hmm. i did a session recently and and i wanted that sound i used the house snare drum it was just tuned perfectly and i knew the engineer had it dialed in and i ended up playing and i'm not a traditional grip player but i ended up playing traditional on it it, and playing a little bit softer and hitting the center of the drum because just my lack of facility in that grip forced me to not play rim shots Mm -hmm. and i was really pleasantly surprised Mm -hmm. with how it turned out yeah yeah that's stuff i don't know if i would have learned without mixing you know yes Yeah, yeah yeah um Maybe I would have, but it's so much more prevalent when you're in here actually fighting a mix to realize, you know what, this section, I'm just going to copy and paste this section all the way through because it's perfect. Yeah. And obviously I wasn't hitting a rim shot. Okay. So I guess that's the trick on the, on this particular style of the song, you know? Yeah. You know. So a friend of mine who's a great engineer, he and his fiance that will be his wife by the time this episode comes out. Mm-hmm. I think they're getting married this weekend. Mm-hmm. Who's also a great engineer. Uh, I've done some work with him off and on. I know he's a big fan of Brothers Osborne. He's seen you guys live. He's a young, very talented engineer. Every once in a while, when I'm getting ready to interview somebody, I can access somebody that has some knowledge of the drummer or the band or whatever. And I'll say, Hey, I'm going to be talking to so-and-so any thoughts, you know? And so I texted Alexander yesterday and, um, he got back with me with some, with some cool things. Uh, and, and one of the things he was asking was mics in the studio. Mm -hmm. And I, I know over three records and all this stuff, I don't know if you can narrow it down or no. I noticed you had SM57s on the toms in there. Is that intentional? or uh, Here, yeah, I definitely, I mean, if it's good enough for all the, the legendary recordings in the past, it's good for me, you know. And, right. Um, kick and snare, or at least snare and toms, yeah, 57. But I've gotten a lot of use out of using the AEA ribbon, stuff uh, like the r88 um it's uh it's it can be the high end can be rounded off so i don't have to i can bash the drums and it's still got a a nice warm thing and i'm not having to do too much high cutting um and jay when we're doing the brothers records Uh um, jay joyce yeah jay joyce is using the aea stuff and the coals, you know, mm-hmm. um, but usually that, that I can tell a lot of the drum sounds coming from that ribbon mic oh, as wow. I do here. Um, and what, what, where is the ribbon mic? What is it used? Is it as a room mic? It it would be sort of a stereo image. We're talking about like maybe five feet in front of the drums. Okay. We're mm-hmm. not talking about fo- too far, but yeah. Um, a lot of times when I just am not happy with the drums, I'll just solo that mic and I'm like, okay. This sounds good. In fact, I want it to sound like this, but then you turn on the music, you're fighting. So that the mic in itself could be used uh, to make some incredible recordings if you have some space. But um, really big fan of the AEA stuff and the Cappy Pre's. Mm. Um, uh, those that really have made a name for themselves, especially around Nashville, but in the gear community, the eight, the uh, Cappy. Uh, preamps are, are game changers for me. Okay. Yeah. 
Yeah, I'm not. I'm not hip with that. That's oh crazy. yeah, dude. It's like a API uh, trembles. Is that what I'm looking at here, or are those a- API on, on the bottom? Yeah, are all that's all cappy all the way. Okay. Yep. And what is the cost of of something like that? Um, I think maybe his platinum series, which are the two gray ones on the yeah. right, there they can be in the you know the nine eight or nine hundred range. Mm-hmm. I could be wrong. Sorry, Jeff. Jeff Steiger is the owner. <laughs> uh, but then the the guys on the left are the hider. Their yellow knobs are hider um, style, and there I think they could run maybe five or six or something. But, gotcha. Um, really he's he's really i mean he's a if you get on like gear sluts or anything you can be looking at something totally non-related to preamps and somebody's going to name drop jeff steiger it could be talking about anything mm-hmm. you know but he's a real celebrity on those forums that's and amazing yeah he makes good stuff for yeah. drums especially and i see you've got the warm audio running as well yeah a couple of the warm like uh neath style uh but the and the actual Neve um, channel strip uh, is what I'll put that on snare top. Okay. I really have the warm. I, I wanted, I hate uh, messing with the patch bay and all this stuff. I want stuff set up. And so when I have a drum kit set up in here, I have it to where I don't, when I want to go in there and play, I don't have to change one thing. So I can get away in the drum, in this, um, in the smaller room using, you know, the warm pre's and a couple of the, cappy stuff and uh, you know some of my auxiliary extra stuff um and then keep the the high end you know the the retro and all that stuff on the on the main kit in there okay okay and and a lot of this stuff is 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 still foreign to me mm-hmm. to a degree less so over time mm-hmm. as i'm i'm familiarizing myself with with names and and their purpose and, mm-hmm. and all this stuff and it, in the digital era and the ability to track you know right out of the box mm-hmm. uh it makes it really easy to kind of just jump right in but as we dive deeper and do more and more and then hear the tones that you're getting or that you've done with Jay is is like okay how do I do that yeah where are you going with that and at least kind of get some of these names and ideas uh, started yeah I definitely was taking notes working with Jay and applying a lot of the same stuff here now we did the um, drums we just um, the it was nominated for a Grammy uh, younger me and so I did the drums here. Okay, and it won the Grammy actually. Yeah, um, great song! Holy cow! And the and the uh, the video is is amazing. Oh, it's, too. yeah, it's touching and moving, and but to be able to do that here, the joke is funny. It's like when when it won the Grammy, I'm like looking like, well, who gets a Grammy? You know, who who involved gets anything? You know, and I don't <laughs> see anything for musicians, but engineers. Well, my girlfriend. Oh, so to clarify, you track drums here for that I song did. that yeah. won the Grammy. Okay, yeah. So, but my girlfriend was in here in the control room, and I'm like, all right, hit R, but don't hit the space bar until you see me stand up. That means it's just going to loop. The song's going to loop. And so she hit R and space bar. So technically she was an engineer and she would get a Grammy, <laughs> but she would get, or at least the statue, the little trophy. Yeah. So I don't know. I think, I hope I get something in the mail for contributing, but uh, I was really proud to have recorded a Grammy winning drum, per- at least performance for a Grammy winning song in this studio. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't want to get away from, from what we're talking about, but, 
it's it's really hard not to point out the fact that when I saw that video, I was tempted to scroll through the comments and see so many people say, uh, and I even wrote this down because I've seen it in other places where people say, I'm not a country music fan, but I love Brothers Osborne. And that seems to be a common sentiment. That song in particular, I think, resonates with so many people in a way that um, is unique. But that aside, the overall output of this band has crossed over not only into popular music, but into alternative styles. Like I mentioned before, Americana, blues, jam band type things. Mm-hmm. How does that? How does that make you feel? Like, how does that? How does the band react to that? Knowing that there are people coming to the shows that aren't interested in country music in general. Yeah, I don't know. I think like there's some little badge of honor when the guy that's obviously a deadhead, (laughs) you know what I mean? Like I've never really been into that so much, but you know, this guy has a very particular taste and he's standing right beside, beside somebody else who has a particular taste and they're not alike at all. You know, um, I think, you know, when people ask me like, you play music, who do you play for? And I say, brothers Osborne. And if they're not familiar, they go, what is it? I'm like, I have to say country, country, a country band because we're in Nashville, country radio, yeah. you know, but we really haven't had radio success as you see it with the other bands. We had to more so build a following of music lovers that mm-hmm. are just genuine fans. So I always say when I say we're a country band, I, I don't feel like that's actually accurate. You know, I just have that's the only that's the correct answer, but it doesn't feel right. You know, <laughs> yeah, I don't. If it was a trivia question, that yeah. would be the correct answer. Yeah, but I, I just just like here in the studio, I'm never thinking of genres. I probably should in some cases because I know people are coming in here sometimes to work with me and they're aspiring to be this kind of thing or this kind of thing. But all I'm doing is just making music in here that I wish existed. And I'm not thinking, uh, how can I make something I wish existed within this p- parameter? I'm just making it, this is, this is unique to it's to what I'm doing at this very moment. And I feel like brothers music is the same thing. I'm it's, it's also a mesh. I did have a heavy metal, uh, influence, you know, as a teenager. So I hit hard. I'm also like, and I say that in a, um, I have a nine inch nails, you know, Trent Reznor was a huge mm-hmm. influence. So I want things to be like almost mechanical, at times you know but uh uh, the way i execute that may not be a per may not be perfect but it's my imperfect way of doing you know thinking what would trent Reznor do here but yet maybe ringo is trying to do it not compare myself to ringo either but the it's a simple thing but it may be avant-garde within the confines of country music and the genre you know right i i it's interesting you say that um one thing I wrote, and, and I don't know what I was thinking when I wrote this, I wrote, traditional country meets modern drum tones and approach, dead man's curve. Yeah. And the and the drum groove on that. And that, and I hear kind of this uh, four in the floor, I'm trying to remember, it's a, it was a song I'm less familiar with, but it, 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 it instantly made me want to write that down when I heard the song. Mm-hmm. And I think what you're talking about is 
this approach that that works well for the song, but your influences are coming out. Mm-hmm. And um, and I want to talk about working with James Joyce, but at the same time, and the band itself, it I feel like those influences you are allowed to express them because what you're talking about is your own personal influences, whether mm-hmm. it's Ringo or what Trent Reznor has produced is they're coming out mm-hmm. in your in your playing mm-hmm. uh, so obviously you're you're given some leeway mm-hmm. you know yeah i mean we, every time we went in the studio there was some sort of rough uh work tape you know like phone recording or something we actually came here to the studio and pre did pre-production so we all just set up oh, here okay. and kind of worked out what we wanted, wanted to do but even dead man's curve that actually, as far as influences, that was what we grew up playing in church. You know, mm-hmm. that was a god. That's gospel. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. that's when the service got kind of crazy. <laughs> you know, we that's kind of church I grew up in. You know, the yeah. Pentecostal. Yeah, for sure. Thing where it could get to jamming and uh, the organ B three's big part of that. You know, and so I just thought, well, I know how to do this. This is what we did at church. You know, mm-hmm. the preacher could, you could be jamming. The preacher could say, hold up, hold up. But you knew that didn't mean stop. That meant stop, just keep on the floor because he's going to have something to say, you know, exactly. but the, or everything goes down dynamically. So that was just, uh, to me, a church song. And it, yeah, very ingrained in my DNA as a drummer, yeah. you know. Uh, so Alexander was asking just as far as like an in-ear mix mm-hmm. that um, I never thought to ask. Yeah. So I'm glad he, he brought this up. But like, how do you like your mix? What inspires you to perform the best you can uh, as far as the balance? Um, and do you go with a full mix or yeah. keep it minimal? There's two times that I play my absolute best. One is when my ears sound awesome. Of course, you know, it sounds like a record I'm listening to. Yeah. The other time is when I don't get a chance. I'm throw and go. One ear has a, you know, uh, if I don't get a chance to even yeah. care about it. Those are the two times I play my best. Um, something, whatever happens in the middle can make me play my, can make me want to quit drum sometimes. <laughs> because if there, once you put in in ears, if the drum feels like, like if you hit the drum and it, even if it sounds good, like it's EQ'd right, so if it doesn't really feel like you're, if it feels like you're hitting electric drums, or it's the best way to explain it, I guess, um, it'll seriously. Almost like it doesn't have that feedback the way you get yeah, when you're playing it, live or, yeah. or, or you're playing. I, I know what you're saying when you talk about playing electronic drums, it just doesn't have that that air moving back at yeah. you. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I'm fighting most of the time because I know there's a particular way in, in the studio you can just hit, you know, soft and, and you're getting the exact tone, you know, that you hit it. I mean, even the smallest increment harder, the tone changes or an increment softer, the tone changes, but there is a sweet spot. Now on live, I'm looking for the sweet spot and I feel like I got my mix now with the right amount of, um, of levels on the close mics i use a, a crotch mic mm-hmm. which you know i don't see a whole lot live yeah that's true I've never but i use that. it in the studio uh-huh. and crunch the hell out of it you know just just a dirty compressed whatever just to blend in with everything you know and even gate it so it's like that kind uh-huh. of vibe uh-huh. so we got that going and um it's really it it, it feels a little larger than life like 
like a record would, but uh-huh. it also feels like I'm connecting to the drums. No different than if I took my ears out. Um, and it, it's taken us a little while to get there, but it's, there's definitely channels of, um, reverb that I have, you know, to the exact length that I want even to cut off. Wow. Now here's the thing is you're thinking more about, I have to think more like a middle ground that works for rock, the rocking songs to the like, because if you do that on the on the songs that I needed to hit the center of the snare real soft, well, all of a sudden you got you know, and then it like and a, you're some, playing that way on uh, some songs live, yeah, where you're playing yeah. soft and hitting the center exactly. Where okay. so I'm like, hey, on these songs, can you just make it to where you just cut off the verb so this will be a dry because it it just will sound weird if if like mm-hmm. this big gated snare sounds happening on this bow you know this like slow dry kind of vibe um so yeah i definitely um it definitely affects my plan for sure but we it's all about um the distortion we we were actually using the cappy uh pre's oh my gosh to go into the board so those things driving all that stuff um I I can say that my drums may be they I lean heavy on the drum side, but I I make sure that I can um I keep my click all the way to the right because it'll disappear like on purpose. Like if I only hear the click if I'm off of it, mm-hmm. otherwise it just disappears the whole show. I'm like good, but I can if I focus on this instrument or that, I can hear it. You know, fine. But when I quit, I'm just focusing on the getting the right tones. If I, if the if if my, the mix ain't right, I'm going to be looking for the sweet spot in the snare and realize I'm bashing the hell out of it, you know. Right. And it, and it sounds bad. Yes. But uh, when I get the mix right and I can play soft, but it sounds like I'm hitting hard, that's when I play my best. You know. Yes. Yeah. It's been interesting uh, to discover that to get a bigger sound, instinctively we want to hit harder, and yet if you back off and and st- you know, what happens physically is that stick does a lot of the work, mm-hmm. gets out of the way. It, it, the drum is able to resonate and, and get a bigger, rounder sound. Yeah. And um, I feel you, man. And those yeah. moments and finding that sweet spot tonally is, uh, is joyous. Yeah. Well, I moved to playing a 5B drumstick. I'd always played a 5A. And now when I play a 5A, it feels like toothpicks. But um, I moved to a 5B because I realized I could let the stick do more of the work. Yep. And it was actually easier, unless I'm fighting to get the tone. And then I've worn myself out by the time you're supposed to ring out the song and do your crazy drum feels. And you just feel like rubber. But, uh, yeah, the bigger drumstick has helped me get that tone. Even out of, you know, not hitting the rim shot, just hitting the center of the snare. It's just, a I feel like more real estate's hitting the drum right that's one thing i uh, that kind of nashville has has brought to me is that um the big as when i moved here it's like it was bigger sticks bigger cymbals you know and it wasn't necessarily louder even though it did get louder but it was um just this tone Mm -hmm. and the drummers that i was meeting that later became some of my heroes like chris McHugh and Mm -hmm. greg morrow it's like they're playing these big huge sticks Mm -hmm. and getting this beautiful sounds and then drum tones became the thing i was chasing after mm-hmm. you know not not the playing not the chops but the but the sounds mm-hmm. that resonates with me with you 
and I, I've, I've seen you with one up, one down, and I've seen you with two floor toms. So just to geek out on, on gear for a second, what are you using size-wise? Yeah, for the whole brothers, I mean, for the last nine years, eight years, I've used just one up, one down. And um, I, I mean, before brothers, I played a floor time kick snare hat cymbal, you know, um, mainly because I was setting up the drums and we were, <laughs> it was like one of those things at like third and Lindsley or something where you just, you got, you know, 10 minutes to set up and whatever. But I started playing, um, when I moved to Craviato, um, I asked for an 18, a 16, 18 floor. And, uh, because there was, uh, because younger me had the big boom, yeah, yeah. big flam Tom thing. And I didn't want to program something to put in the rolling pad to do that i just wanted the drums to actually do that maybe the uh engineer out front ride up the verb or something on it but um it's so crazy how adding one extra movement can just change every you, you, all, the, the feels are different the drums are the same they're just one extra drum and even if i don't hit that drum it still psychologically has yeah. me playing feels that i would, wouldn't play if i did two up and one down, which I haven't done that. And I, I mean, I, I want to, but uh, that would make my feels be complete. I would just think it wouldn't even sound like me. It's crazy, you know, just psychologically where yeah. the positioning and having that one extra drum. You have one extra place to go to if you have if you need it, you know. Right, it right. Just creates a different feeling with the feels. But yeah, I've really enjoyed having an eighteen. Yeah, yeah. That that I've got. I've got a, it's a, my road kit is 12, 14, 16. And, and lately I've been leaving the 14 at home and the engineer's like, man, bring out that other floor, Tom. But I want that 16 right next to me. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, maybe I need to go 16, 18. Yeah. You know, 13, 16, 18, I think would be, you know, but I don't have a drum tech on the road. Mm-hmm. I'm carrying my own drums or they're being brought in and I've got to set them up. But mm-hmm. still, I'm, hauling them from the house to the bus or whatever so it is as simple as i can keep it right now um but still i don't know we knew what we were getting into when we started doing this and yeah (laughs) well you know i did it it hasn't been long that i've actually had a drum tech and wasn't setting my stuff up you know you'd be surprised how more of a recent luxury that is but i really took that time while I was doing it, um, and I said at the time, I was like, I'm always going to set up my drums because I would take that time, I'd be on the bus and it'd be kind of like getting close to time I need to start going to where, you know, where the drums are, what air yep. church tour or whatever, and get them set up on the riser. And I would find myself being like, oh, I gotta go set up, you know, but I was just like, man, 14 year old me would just whoop my tail if he heard me you know it's like what how did i get to that and so i just try to spend my time uh when i'm setting up when i'm taking out the legs of the hardware setting it up and putting it down just to say no matter how i felt no matter how i was tired or excited or whatever just to spend that time thinking uh, me personally thanking god you know that he put me in this situation that i really you know, can't take full responsibility for it was just circumstances that kind of led to it. And I just say, thank you for this, uh, opportunity. Thank you for mm-hmm. putting me around people that I'd never be around. Otherwise, thank you for these gifts and all that kind of stuff, just to have a, some sort of spirit of thankfulness that, um, 
to keep in check that this is something a lot of people would dream to do and uh and there's purpose you know even in just entertaining even if it's just for entertaining there's purpose in it right that the you know, just kind of keep that humility mm-hmm. in check. Mm-hmm. I think it's really important, no matter what you're doing, is reminding yourself that there are people that would love to be doing mm-hmm. what you're doing. And depending on whatever kind of day you're having or whatever the situation is, it's, yeah. yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah, your work is literally starts with play. You know what I mean? Exactly. What do you do? I play drums mm-hmm, mm-hmm. do you play leave them lay them floors you used to do that mm-hmm. do you play building you know any it's a job where you play so yeah. like maybe the title uh, of this podcast working drummer was wrong <laughs> playing, <laughs> yeah, drummer. playing drummer yeah <laughs> yeah oh no we're too too far into it <laughs> yeah <laughs> too late <laughs> i got that one i'll start that one <laughs> let me ask you about working with jay joyce mm-hmm. so tell people like who are maybe unfamiliar yeah. with who he is, but maybe familiar with the people that he's worked with. Oh yeah. Well, Jay, you know, he's, uh, definitely the big hand in, uh, breaking, uh, Eric church and those recordings, um, little big town. And, um, and he's, uh, you know, he's always kind of been left of center and you can tell it in both of those acts. Yeah. Uh, when you come up, when you start out with Eric church, when, once you get to chief, you hear, okay, somebody got a hold of this and was thinking, uh, you know, was kind of the same thing was talking about. Wasn't playing within the rules of genre, you know, or of, of Nashville itself. Exactly. I can tell you here in creeping by Eric church was a, a moment for me where I was like, wait, this is nine inch nails, you know, as a band, we're already, you know, a little left of center musically. So Jay, you know, had a tendency to push that maybe even further. I don't know if that worked in our favor as far as, uh, what the radio, what radio can do for country music. But, um, uh, there's a lot of, uh, and if Jay's listening to this, I mean this good. There's been a lot of ho- horror stories of working with Jay because <laughs> he's uh, very particular on drums and bass. Mm. But I personally enjoyed every minute working with Jay. Uh, I don't, I can't really compare uh, if he was harder on me or l- less hard. But I didn't mm-hmm. find. I found it. To, I felt thought like everything he was coming to me saying was like we were just jamming back and forth mentally about. You know, I was just thinking as a producer. He was trying to think like a drummer, and I was trying to think like a producer. Okay. You know, and so. Uh, what were some of those things that he was talking about? Um, I would say sometimes like where maybe I wanted to, he would want like an extra snare on some backbeat or something, you know. So I would just continue doing what I was doing, but add this particular backbeat. Or he would hand me a a stick that had more like a horse whip kind of end, you know, to play the same beat and now play it with this. One time he taped, uh, these maracas all, you know, like, no, they were goat fingernails. Yeah. You know, the whatever. And he taped them to my hand, you know, so I have like this taped on my hand kind of deal. Uh Stuff like that. Um, and yeah, he's he's eccentric dude, but he's not afraid to, to try things, uh, I always think he, he's he's like uh, he's the Rick Rubin of country music, really, because 
I meant when I heard uh, Johnny Cash do Hurt by Nine Inch Nails, uh-huh. I was like, okay, this is the thing I feel like I would have suggested. And everybody was like, ha, 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 okay, for real. And I'm like, no, I'm serious. I know it's weird, but yeah. but it takes Rick Rubin or somebody like that. Yep. Like Jay, somebody yep. that uh, you just trust it. You're like, the reason stuff happens for this dude is because he's like this. You know what I mean? Um, so I've enjoyed uh, every every second of working with with jay and um i don't know what's going to happen in the future as far as producers but um yeah i think he's a uh i think he's got some genius in him alexander and i when we were texting back and forth i mentioned that i i feel like every record is finding the band's sound more and more Mm -hmm. um and he's like i totally agree like the the first record had a lot of success and and great songs but i felt like the second record had just a more cohesive sound and personality coming out of it and then even the newest record was what 2020 mm-hmm. that came out um that it it's like man i'm i'm just hearing more and more of of the band and I, I don't know. It, it it's it's really interesting to me. Are you? Do you hear that that progression? I hear about it a lot. You hear about it, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I, you know, it's like you're. That's the beauty of of the studio. It's like you're capturing whatever it is that day. It's 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 uh. The band's definitely progressed, um, but I think we always wanted there was something loose and I. It's hard to I say that in a, a sense of like almost falling off the ledge. Mm-hmm. Um, I think uh, in other, I really thought that when I got with a country band in Nashville, I'd be, uh, you know, just playing it. I didn't think I'd be playing on the records for sure, but playing it safe the whole time. You know, it's like this is what being professional is. You don't, I don't I have no reason to even get close to that ledge because this ain't about me. This ain't about whatever. This is about this song as recorded, whatever. But Jay was really pushing us towards a ledge. He was like, stay a little longer has the jam on the end, but that's a one take. He was like, when y'all get done playing this take, keep playing. We're like, what does that mean? Keep playing. Mm-hmm. And even uh, shoot me straight. There's several times he said that and we just had, and we wouldn't let us discuss it either. You know, it was like, mm-hmm. it's like, all right, all right. So when I end the song, I'm like, no, shut up and do it. It's like, all right. Yeah. So and those, you all are tracking in the same room, same room together. Most, I would say every song is, is full takes. There's no, we're not overdubbing and punching in and fixing. It's like, if we don't get this full take, then uh, we're going to do it again until we get it. And the yeah. same thing happened even on the latest record with uh, Dead Man, or it was Muskrat Green would go into Dead Man's Curve. Mm-hmm. So we wanted to track that all the way through. So you get through that whole song and it's, you know, 140 beats a minute rocking. You're on the very end. You're like, I do not want to be the person that messes this up, but mm-hmm. I want to continue to go to the ledge. And bro- John and TJ have have always been supportive of you know it was a thing that if we fell off the ledge they would turn around and maybe give you a grin like you try you yeah good push it to that left that far don't play safe you know so yeah the live experience has really been uh some marriage between the discipline of the song and pushing it to the ledge 
and it can go all kinds of wild places yeah when you're not scared to do that yeah you know no i hear that within even within the confines of the song structure Mm -hmm. um in you just talking about that is making me realize that's what i'm hearing that's what I'm, and not that she played it safe on the first record, Pawn Shop 2016, Port St. Joe 2018, and then Skeletons on 2020. It's like I'm hearing just more, um, just taking more chances. And with something like that, it's like, man, I'm, I'm going to be listening to these records for a long time mm-hmm. and hearing stuff like, oh, I didn't notice that before, mm-hmm. you know. Not only the, the you know the the tones and the songs and you know everything else that comes along with it, but that's to me that maybe that that's what it is. That's that's what kind of defines true art is something that you come back to mm-hmm. and appreciate. And it's it's less pop art mm-hmm. and more uh, something that's is sustainable over a long period of time. Mm-hmm. You know, it's been an interesting thing in the 22 years that I've lived in Nashville to try and wrap my head around what it is that Nashville is and adapt to it and think of it the way that you were thinking of it and like, okay, what do I need to do to be professional? What's, what's, what's the kind of operation order of operations here? Mm-hmm. Um, and then you find yourself in a band that is wanting to kind of throw that all aside, mm-hmm. you know, and and I think because of the success of the band, it's making an impression upon, you know, the scene mm-hmm. and the way people want to produce records. Yeah. And um, you know, as a as a as a musician here in town, I, I, I you know I think a lot of us want to say thank you because mm. yeah. <laughs> we wouldn't be able to do that, you know, more and more. Yeah, I think uh, the people that come here for me to produce a song for them, uh, I kind of take, I'm taking the same approach. I even kind of make it clear that I want to take the same approach. If you like what we're doing, that's kind of what I'm doing here and p- pitch it in that fashion, you know? Yeah. So the, the, the single that, that won the Grammy, mm-hmm. um, remind me of the name again, younger me, younger me. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking tomorrow. So younger me, so that's kind of an expression of of the event of TJ, one of the brothers, mm-hmm. having coming out as mm-hmm. gay, mm-hmm. Um, which was in and still in this day just like a very unique situation for the country music industry. Mm-hmm. Did that affect the band? Can you speak to that and maybe how that maybe changed anything within the organization? Yeah, I think definitely TJ never wanted to make you like make a strategy as to coming out when that would be Uh a good move or or anything i think um and he's not the first gay you know country singer right but it in some ways it feels like he is you know um because i think the timing you know at least culturally um it was uh it kind of it sort of fits with the whole thing uh, with the whole brothers Osborne falling off the ledge. For some reason, it fits. It ties into the whole spirit of that whole mm-hmm. deal. But um, you know, TJ is a man's man. Yeah. You know, and um, when he decided to do that, 
you know, it certainly, it didn't hurt by no means. Um, like maybe in the past he may have feared it would have, as, mm-hmm. as anybody would have in the country scene and kind of the, you know, the co- huge conservative base. But um, I think uh, I think it helped a lot because I wouldn't say the base of, uh, the, the fan base of Brothers Osborne isn't necessarily the typical fan base of, of country music mm-hmm. either way. Um, so... Yeah, I think it. I think uh, I don't think it hurt one bit. Sure, it's. I thought it was really interesting to to uh, when that happened, how uh, quickly that news dissipated, and people weren't really talking about it Mm -hmm. anymore. It was like, oh, that's interesting. Okay, great. When's the next record coming? I mean, it just it wasn't. It wasn't even a big deal. Yeah, well, he's not really singing, even the lyrical content, he's not singing like, you know, girl, you got my, whatever. It's like, uh, there's stuff about love, uh, certainly, but it's kind of uh, ambiguous. It's, It's not, you don't really tie it to any singular person like you would hear a lot of country songs do. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. and he's not in like Headstone or, or skeletons that's it's like everybody kind of you get the message but you're not thinking of the maybe the gender he's even talking or the sex sure, or the person sure. he's even talking about it yeah it's ir- ir- irrelevant you know yeah i find that really i find that really fascinating and and uh also just inspirational too mm-hmm. you know to to live in a town like nashville and work in uh, a genre that has kept me busy as a full-time musician to uh feel this progression and this acceptance it's mm-hmm. like okay this is this is good from from my from my point of view you yeah know, from, from my perspective and 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 the what the values that i hold is is uh personally is like thank you this yeah. is good and it's like i do enjoy this music i do enjoy this genre um does it always do does this does some of the culture that surrounds it um, sometimes match my values, not always, but, um, you know, what, what genre does, you know, really, but, um, at the same time to feel like this is where I'm investing a lot of my time and my energy, um, that it's like, okay, cool, that works. But also going back to the fact that, uh, it just didn't make, it made news, up to a certain point and then mm-hmm. it kind of just like everybody just moved on i'm like okay that that's a good space to be in yeah you know yeah well news doesn't stick around long these days it's always <laughs> no something else is, no matter what <laughs> yeah probably, for sure everybody probably doesn't they probably all forgot he's gay <laughs> just it's a reminder i know i know it's, it's hardly it's hardly the well, thing you know, to worry about the thing about it is he is it's all of it's all about the music anyways. It's like, you don't want, and I don't care what color, gender, sexual preference. It's like, I just don't want anybody getting, uh, the recognition if they're not good. You know what I mean? It's like, right, right. I don't, I don't want to say any, I could, I could easily say something wrong here, but I, I mean (laughs) that like first and foremost is, it's like if I'm working with somebody here, it's like I don't want to be working with you because you're a girl or because you're this. I want to tell you, and I want to look in your face and say, you are a star. 
you are good and mean it. And yeah. there ain't, and you're not like I'm working with you because this is going to be an easy sale because it fits the demographic of something that, mm-hmm. you know, I think what is a thing about John and TJ or brothers Osborne is the music is there. You know, it's like the, him being gay didn't make him. Yes. Didn't make people don't like it because he's gay or they like, they, they give him a, if they don't agree with him being gay, they give him a pass because they like the music. Right. Right. You know? Right. Yeah, if it stunk, you may have more, you know, if it was okay, but you know that this is getting somewhere because it's the right time to have a gay, you you wouldn't get as much grace, I think. Sure, sure, you know? even even today. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and it's, I mean, you think about, like, just how powerful and influential Queen was throughout a, a very divisive time, mm-hmm. you know, in the 70s and 80s. and But, I mean, like, gosh, how undeniable that band Oh, yeah. Is. I mean, you could have the most conservative grandma in the world going, we will, we will rock you, not thinking about, why well, no. don't sing gay singer songs, you know? <laughs> it's like, it's just classic. Undeniable. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Last question. Favorite experience during your time with Brothers Osborne? Live or in the studio? Man, I would say, uh, I'm going to have to say playing the Grammys. I mean, that's, you'd say, well, duh. I mean, can you think of anything (laughs) better than that? But the reason that was special to me was that um, I felt really nervous. Mm. And it reminded me because once you've done it for as long as we've done it now and has played as many shows, it's easy to lose the adrenaline that comes with being nervous mm-hmm. and that adrenaline make turns you into a superhuman, you know? And it felt like for the first time in a while I got not just a, I mean, like we, we backed up Brooks and Dunn at the stadium here and maybe there was a little nerves there. Make sure I want to do that right. You know, and there's a couple of times I'm like, okay, this is very, I cannot mess up. This is very serious. Don't drop, drop whatever. But I'm talking about something a little more intense. Yeah. Something that is like humbling some imposter syndrome going on, then some empowering, like, you know, the adrenaline that comes up. The, the Grammys were special to me because it reminded me um, that I'm still I'm still alive, you know, mm-hmm. and d- d- drums, it's just hitting, picking up a drumstick and hitting a drum has led me to being in this position, you know, on a song that uh, and playing a song in my studio and tracking the drums um yeah I, I wish i wish i could give you something better than the grammys anybody would say that you know no no i i i understand what you're saying it, it just it kind of it, it it clarifies a lot of of things and uh, um and and it's again i think even in the midst of something that's so grandiose is also humbling because you're reminded of what it is that you're doing and and where you came from mm-hmm. and how you're gone from point A to point B, this very large point A to point B, uh, at, at being the Grammys and, and realizing, wow, this is 
I'm just following my gut. I've, I've had the support of my parents. I've, I, I, I'm, I'm just playing drums. I'm just following my nose wherever it goes. And here, here, how did I get here? Mm-hmm. You know, and I, I think that's a beautiful thing because you know that there's people that are at the Grammys that are probably thinking, well, it's about time they recognize my brilliance. Yeah, yeah. And you, and you're coming up from the complete opposite. It's like, this is amazing. This is yeah. and 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 the gut reaction and the and the visceral reaction yeah. of it was was such that uh, the nervousness. That, yeah. That well, this this may be a little heavy as far as far as digging into the the wallowing out the hole of the mind. <laughs> but <laughs> if you're thankful, thank thankfulness it's not a one way street. It has, it's a two way street. Okay. There has to be a receiver, you mm-hmm. know, I can just be th- thankful that nobody did something for me. That doesn't make sense. Thankfulness is, uh, it's a sender and a receiver and you can say, I'm very thankful, but it just goes into the abyss mm-hmm. unless it hits the receiver. And I'm thank, I honestly, you know, use that time to just say thank you in my head. I'm very, it's, it's a, you know, if you don't say thank you, it means that you, if you brought me some water and I didn't say thank you, I would say, of course you brought me some water. I was thirsty and you bring me water. That's what mm-hmm. you do. But if I'm, tr- I'm like thankful that you brought it, you know, um, then I'm, I'm, I have to, humble myself in a way to say I don't deserve your kindness you know kind of deal yeah and so I think uh it's going back to setting up the drums and yeah the same the same sort of uh awakening is that I'm thankful that I'm here that I would not be here without uh without uh even bad stuff losing that gig getting fired was bad yes it was not, it was the best thing that ever happened. Exactly. You know, yeah. and that those things, even the things that I think I could go back and change, I'd be like, man, if I could undo this or these mistakes, it's like, no, 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 no. Every bit of that was orchestrated for, um, for you to be here. And in, in my personal opinion is that it's not some purpose that has to be, you know, like, like everybody in the world sees. I could be getting to some place for one specific purpose that is nobody ever sees you know mm-hmm. when we we played a couple of weeks ago at a festival and the guy uh it was at catering he was working for catering and um he was just picking up the lids you know making sure that when we was get something he put the lid back on so it flies or whatever and something i was just looking at this dude and i just felt this like just really fighting it too that i wanted to speak to him and he, you know it was kind of rough um, not rough, but just look like maybe, I don't know, possible prison and, mm-hmm. you know, tattoos on the face kind of, but he was just staring off into the distance. But anyways, more people came to eat. So I was like, um, yeah, I'll, so I left, you know, but it, that thing tugged on me and then dinner rolls around again, too many people. I didn't, but after dinner, I made myself. I got off the bus. I was. Oh, I walked over to him, and I just said, "Hey, man, I wanted to talk to you." And he said, "I already knew you was." 
<laughs> he said, I, his specific words was like, I said, I want to talk to you. Uh, hey, man, I just wanted to say something to you. He goes, he said, is it about Jesus? <laughs> and I was like, oh, well, it's not, not exactly, but he was like, because I just, I knew, I knew you were going to come talk to me. Yeah. And I said, well, all I wanted to say was that, um, that you have purpose and, uh, and everything that's led up to this point has been in, is is led you to this point for a reason and you're not forgotten you know yeah and he just had tears he mm. knew i was gonna come tell him this and then when i left there i said you know what every single thing that's led me to this point looks like your story supposed to be some grand thing that eventually everybody's like and the and the the curtain comes down and everybody's clapping but my purpose could actually been just for that one man yep you know yeah and i and i have peace knowing that if it is then you then this can end right now and i'll have complete peace with that mm-hmm. you know, i'll be like if my purpose is something that nobody saw but me and that one guy i'm 100 percent cool with that yeah um so i think that that's a <laughs> that whatever that is and whatever happened when i'm setting up the drums and the feeling at playing at the grammys it's not about how magnificent the Grammys are. It's about the the um, careful, uh, what is the word? Um, it's uh, providence, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. No, I love that story, man. Thank you so much for, for sharing it. And I think the fact that you mentioned the Grammys, I think if people take note of... Uh, our conversation, mm-hmm. past conversations and interviews, and people that know you n- know why you would say that, and and the, how uh, gracious and and thankful you are for having gotten to that place mm-hmm. and appreciating that moment. Mm-hmm. Um, that certainly was that was my takeaway when 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 you told me and it's interesting because i find that drums speaks to our personalities when you meet somebody and then you hear them play they sound like that person mm-hmm. um and i find that knowing you through your drums first and your performance first and now getting to meet you in person um and learning more about you leading up to our conversation I see a connection between who you are as a man and who you are as a drummer. Mm-hmm. And there's a there's a passion and humility in it. It's not that, oh man, there's some power and there's some there's some like control and like all this stuff and then I'm gonna meet this like high energy crazy dude. Mm-hmm. There is a, a humility that you're bringing to like, I'm gonna serve this song and I'm going to be a part of this group mm. um, that comes out in the performance. And I think that's what resonates with a lot of my peers, mm. with us being introduced to you and what you're doing now. As we have hear you, learn the parts, play, you know, play it from time to time or, or hear it, and it's like, yeah. And I think that's why Lee Kelly mentioned you on Facebook on a Facebook post and said, what drummer can I talk to that knows how to serve the song? Mm-hmm. Well, Adam's one of them, you know? So the, so you're, you're, you're reinforcing my thoughts by 
telling that story. Yeah. You know, so I, and I, and I'm guessing that, you know, the band saw that in you when you first joined, you know, from the get go. You're like, yeah, he's, he's a good drummer, but he's a good dude. Hmm. So he's, we're in it for the long haul and we got to spend a lot of time together. So let's get this guy. Yeah. Forward. Thanks. <laughs> thanks, man. Yeah. yeah. It's interesting learning because we're all different. We're all so different in so many ways. The band, you know, it's like, I would say I'm definitely the odd man out, but, um, it's a great experiment on how you coexist with people. You know, it's like, and it's been a lot of grace for me because they're like my brothers and family, you know, yeah. so I can even see, uh, perspectives that I wouldn't normally have because I love them so much. And I hope yeah. they feel the same way about me, you know? Um, yeah. Well, I'll talk to them next. And yeah. Good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, Adam, I, I can't thank you enough, man. I, it's 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 always a surprise to me uh, to think I, I know how a conversation's going to go, and it and I'm always pleasantly surprised, and and especially today, man. I, I really appreciate that. It's been a lot of fun to meet you, to see your studio space, and and uh, I'm I'm a fan, man. Oh, I'm a fan of what you do. I'm a fan of the band, and and I know a lot of people are too. But thank you for being here. Uh, thanks for having me. It's a real honor and um i appreciate what you do and a lot of people do so and i hope to catch you know i really haven't seen any bands cover brothers I, I, maybe once or twice I, I couldn't believe it but i hope to see uh <laughs> i hope to see since you uh maybe the couple times i did i'm like oh, they really didn't listen to that part very well so maybe, <laughs> maybe yeah yeah right. <laughs> right 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 no, maybe, maybe not well thanks man appreciate yeah, it absolutely so there you have it, my conversation with Adam Box. Really appreciate him uh, taking some time for me. It was great to speak with him, great to meet him. I've been a fan for a long time. I appreciate my friend Alexander Shile for contributing to the conversation and uh, his insight coming from an engineer's perspective. That was good to have that on this conversation. Stay tuned next week for Zach Albetta's interview with drummer Tommy Crane a Montreal-based drummer specializing in jazz and ambient music. But for now, everyone, thanks so much for listening, and stay safe and stay sane. I'll see you around. Bye-bye.